Chandra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is Every Student Matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. My guest today is David Jilks, an early childhood educator from Illawarra Primary School in Hobart. David has been a passionate and highly regarded early childhood educator for 23 years, having completed his Bachelor of Education at Flinders University in 1993 and in 2013 a Master of Early Childhood Education through Griffith University. He has worked mainly with four- and five-year-old children and their families in both government and independent settings in the ACT and Tasmania, and has been awarded a National Excellence in Teaching Award for Innovation in Early Childhood Education. David has been inspired by the Reggio Emilia Educational Project for many years and has been fortunate enough to have participated in study tours to this Italian city on three occasions. He is currently convener of the Tasmanian Reggio Emilia Network and has presented, consulted and written widely and frequently on issues of education. Well, I'm here in the beautiful city of Hobart and I'm joined by David Jilks. David, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. David, why have you decided to focus your career on early childhood education? What interests you about this stage of development? Well, it's, it's really interesting because when I first started doing my teaching degree, I actually was enrolled in a primary degree. And in my very first year of um, teacher's college, I got put into a year two classroom um, because the teacher that was with me on, on a prac placement, a student teacher, had preference for their year group. I thought I was going to do year six. I always wanted to be a year six teacher and this year six teacher um, this student I was on prac with got their first choice and got to go into the year six classroom they put me into a year two classroom and my first reaction was babies I I don't want to work with babies year two (laughs) year two are babies Um, and it was a life changer for me it turned my life around because it was something where I discovered I had a real um, passion it was my calling I've you hear people say about having a calling but I really believe it was for me. I really connected with a lot of aspects of the job. I connected with the fact that it's it's an age group where you can really see learning happening in front of you the whole time. I love the fact that you can go, walk into a classroom full of four and five year olds and they're enthusiastic, they've got this desire to learn, they've got this sense of wonder, they've got this sense of creativity, they want to get their hands dirty, they want to be involved in everything and that just makes me really excited every day. It's wonderful, really, because we don't often hear of men, and without stereotyping, Mm. men who are passionate about this area in Mm. early childhood. Mm. So do you find that you bring something to the table there? Look, I really think that I can get a little bit frustrated with discussions around um, men in early childhood because I like to think that what I bring is is being a good teacher and regardless of gender um, I often get parents say oh I'd really love my son or my daughter to have a male teacher and look I understand that this job this profession is dominated 
by females, that's, that's very true. But I also think, what is it about me that makes me a good teacher? And surely it's more than my gender. Absolutely. So, mm. In 2014, you were awarded a National Excellence in Teaching Award for Innovation in Early Childhood. Yes. And with the grant money you received, you participated in a study tour of the forest kindergartens in Denmark, mm. which sounds fascinating. What did you learn on this tour? Look, this was a really exciting experience for me. We're very lucky in Hobart to live in, and Tasmania, to live in a place that's just naturally beautiful, full of really amazing uh, places that children and families and, and us as adults, we can get out and explore. One of the things that really um, I noticed about being in a place like Denmark, there's a huge emphasis on trust. There's a huge emphasis on seeing children as competent and capable, and that idea that risk is a good thing. There are, obviously there are parameters around risk, but exposing children to risk that is um, safe and lets children explore their, their limitations, that in connects them with, with nature and um, the outside world. Um, all of these things are really, really positive. And in Denmark, I was lucky enough to visit um, a few nature kindergartens, and in some of these settings, I saw kids climbing way up high into trees. No, no concern from the adults at all because the children were trusted to, to, to take risks, to say, mm, will this branch support my weight? No, I don't think it will. Yes, it will. And, and these kids were doing amazing things because there was that level of trust. And the other thing that was really um, fantastic about it was in Australia, we're very risk averse. We seem to be creating place spaces that are so um, devoid of risk that we're actually causing more accidents. There's actually quite a bit of research that says more accidents are happening because playgrounds are becoming safer and safer places um, and, and removing that element of risk. And in Denmark, one of the things that they actually say is that if they're climbing over um, a rock or up a tree and the child falls down and hurts themselves, they call that a a wood wound that that's just happened as part of being in the woods. Now if for example in that early childhood setting um, one of the educators or families had carved one of these bits of wood into a, a car or, a, or an aeroplane, if they had changed nature in some way and the child had fallen off and hurt themselves then there is every um, opportunity for the parents to sue if they wanted to. But there is no risk associated with a child falling out of a tree. There is this attitude that that's nature accidents happen with that, that's part of learning, that's part of making us who we are. It's a very different attitude. And the it sounds like it's the attitudes of the parents that, no. that are quite different to Australian parents. Yeah, absolutely. Look, when we were there, we actually saw um, a young boy have an injury from a tree and the parent was contacted and the parent arrived to collect that child. The attitude of the parent was very much, you know, dust yourself off, brush yourself down you'll be okay, this sort of thing happens, let's go home and deal with it. Rather than seeing any sort of negativity to that experience, it was a learning experience for that child and the parent appreciated that that was a learning experience for that child. Why do you think that it's beneficial to allow a greater sense of risk in early childhood? Look, I really think, as I, as I alluded to before, I really do think what's happening now is that we do have, I guess, this idea of helicopter parenting, this idea of um, parents making, wanting to wrap their children up in cotton wool uh, or bubble wrap and make sure that they're really, really safe. And of course, we understand that there are lots of things that can happen 
to, to all of us. But unless children are exposed to risks and risk taking, then they're never going to get the opportunity to learn from their mistakes, to test boundaries, to have that self-confidence and just generally um, have that ability to be able to solve problems by themselves and with each other. Although I suppose schools do have to protect themselves, don't they? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There, you know, there obviously there are. We have things put in place to ensure that everybody is safe. But one of the things I've actually started doing a lot more with my children is actually we have to fill out risk assessments for certain activities that we do. We've actually started to do those together with the children, so they're actually having a voice in those risk assessments. And what we're finding surprisingly, or depending on what your image of the child is, that the children actually know what the risks are, they know what the problems might be, and, and they're actually putting forward really sensible suggestions to keep themselves safe. So I think there is a way of managing what we have to do, but also uh, making it a bit more realistic and exposing kids to risks in a more positive way. You also went to Italy and yes. you say that you've been inspired by the Reggio Emilia Education Project for many years. Yes. You're currently convener of the Tasmanian Reggio Emilia Network. For those of us who haven't heard of the project, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, Reggio Emilia, one of the most important things to know about Reggio Emilia is it's not a recipe, it's not a model, it's not something that we can replicate here in Australia. Reggio Emilia is a city in northern Italy, it's very close to Bologna. Uh, after the um, Second World War, the families in Reggio Emilia were looking to um, rebuild a lot of their cities and were looking at a way that they could um, provide for um, their children in a more positive way, having come out from su such a negative experience. And one of the things that they were left with after the, at the end of the war was an old army tank and the people in the village, of, when it was a, more of a village than a city, of Reggio Emilia, they decided that they would sell this army tank. The men in the village wanted to build a new theatre with the money they raised but the women in the town really were interested in building preschools because they saw that as a way of moving forward from the war and, and having an influence over, over children in a, in a really positive way. So they needed the help out of a philosopher, an educator and they found that in Loris Malaguzzi. Now Loris Malaguzzi is considered the father of the Reggio Emilia approach and in um, in the years that followed there were, have been many preschools and infant toddler centres, so infant toddler centres 0 to 3 and preschools for 3 to 6 year olds that have been established in the city of Reggio Emilia and they have at their core the, the values that education is a right, that children are competent, capable, creative um, beings that have a have their own sense of agency. They believe in uh, the environment as, as a really important teacher. They use the phrase the environment as the third teacher. They believe in children having a hundred languages, ways of expressing themselves and their theories. But really at its core is this really strong image of the child, the child that is a protagonist and an active participant in the learning process. So often I think, David, parents and teachers think they know best and handing control and responsibility over to children again requires trust and risk. Why do we have an issue with that as grown-ups? I, I, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. One of the things about the Reggio Media Educational Project and something I really try to live in my um, practice 
is this whole idea of co-construction of learning, that it's not about me being the sage on the stage or being the imparter of knowledge, filling up children's heads with facts and information. And I think that's where we, we come from. We come from this place, that's our own schooling. We were all brought up with the teacher at the front of the classroom and us in rows sometimes hearing information and facts that we were supposed to memorize and learn and that's that's what teaching was. These days uh, I think there's a lot more understanding around the process of co-construction in learning that it's not just about us imparting that knowledge but children and families and educators working together to construct meaning together and I think that's something that's really really strong in the Reggio Emilia Educational Project and I think it's something that is really important in the early years because there is this image of children as being needy, as being cute, as being uh, needing an adult to make them ready for something, to prepare them. There's this whole idea that we need to prepare children um, to become adults. They're citizens now, they're protagonists and active children with agency right now and if we come from that place then I think it just shifts our whole idea of what education is all about. Can you give us a specific example of a classroom project that utilises what you're saying there? Yeah, so for, for example, just in the last couple of years um, at the school I'm, I'm currently at, we took the children to our local um, shopping centre. Now we thought that the children might start engaging with some of the local shops there, the post office, the pizza shop, some of those things. We had, we had very set ideas, I guess, in our head of what the children might engage with and want to learn about. But what was really, really interesting when we went to that shopping centre is that the children were fascinated with a shop that was empty. It was, the, it was an empty shop. And what we found from deeper explorations and actually listening to the children, and that's something that's key in the Reggio Emilia Educational Project, is this pedagogy of listening rather than telling. If we really listened to the children and what they had to say about this empty shop, they were starting to empathise with this empty shop and starting to attribute, I guess, human characteristics to it. The, the shop's feeling sad, it's got nobody to play with, it's got nothing inside of it. And our project, our inquiry project, came about from the idea of the empty shop. So from this, a lot of learning came about so that we, are, um, we were actually ending, ending up making presents for the empty shop to cheer up the empty shop. So our whole project developed around this idea of, of empathy and what it means to make somebody, or something in this case, feel better. And so that only came through co-constructing the learning with the children and really listening to the children. And that's what really became a really deep and meaningful inquiry and meaningful learning. It sounds like it's also about asking the right questions. Absolutely. And I really love when, the, I think it's the Dalai Lama uh, who said that there's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth, because it's really important that we do a lot more listening um, to children rather than, than speaking. Because if we, if we really believe that learning is co-construction, then you've got to leave that time for listening. Research seems critical in order to fully understand and value children's processes of action and thought. David, what is the latest research into early childhood education telling us? Look, I think a lot of what I've already talked about is coming out very strongly in the research that, that 
children are not empty vessels. They're not just waiting for us to fill them up with ideas. They're very much children that have really strong ideas, theories, and, and can really construct learning. I think one of the things that I'm, I'm really, really uh, finding is that theory needs to work alongside practice. And one of the things, uh, going back to Loris Malaguzzi again, who was the father of the Reggio Emilia approach, he, he compared it to a bicycle that a bicycle has two wheels and one of those bicycle wheels is theory and one of those bicycle wheels is practice and they really need to work together because I think it, to be a, a practitioner and a practitioner of excellence I think you really need to understand the theory and you need to understand um, how that relates to the practice. There's a lot of great things happening at the moment in schools all around um, our country and I think a lot of that is coming from this idea of socio-constructivism and this idea of um, co-constructing knowledge together with children. Speaking of research, in your master's thesis you focused on parent perspectives on beauty in Australian early childhood settings and its place of importance in the life of a child. Can you tell us about your thesis and findings in a nutshell, so to speak? <laughs> yes, summing up a thesis in a nutshell, yeah. it's always fun. Um, look, one of the things that I've really been um, passionate about as, a, as an educator in my own work is providing experiences that are, I guess, rich in beauty and aesthetics. I think that's a really um, important part of, of teaching. Um, Vea Vecchi, who's actually an educator from Reggio Emilia, actually says that the task of teaching cannot forget beauty. And that really prompted me to think, well, what do they actually mean by this? What does she mean, the task of teaching cannot forget beauty? And in Reggio Emilia, beauty and aesthetics permeates everything that they do. It's one of their core values. And they're not just talking about beauty on a very superficial level. They're talking about beauty as a way of making learning connections. They're talking about beauty in relationships. They're talking about beauty in the environments and the materials and the context for learning that we provide for children. And one of the things that has been really interesting in this research is getting to understand some parent perspectives on beauty. because. We all know that if we, say, walk into a space, we're, we're going to get an instant reaction to that space. You, you compare walking into a room that is very bare, very empty, to a space that is actually set up in a way that's purposely thinking about beauty and aesthetics and the different reaction you get to that. And it's really interesting because I feel that as, as educators, we set up classroom environments every day and we need to be really conscious of what sort of messages these are communicating to our kids and also to our families. Um, that's just one part of it, beauty and aesthetics in the environment. As I say, it's more multi-layered than that. It's about beauty in relationships. It's about beauty between making learning connections. Gregory Bateson, who um, is well known in educational circles, talks about aesthetics as a pattern which connects. And uh, I really think that one of the things about my research has been highlighting that beauty and aesthetics are a way of, of children and adults making connections with their learning. Do beauty and aesthetics enhance learning? I, I, th I think so. I think so. We, we all know when something is missing in. Um, 
in regards to beauty and aesthetics, really interesting from talking to the parents, that it was not something that they'd necessarily considered. But when they started reflecting upon it through some of the questions that I asked in interviews with the parents, they found that it was something that was really, really important. And it was what I actually asked some of the participants to do is to actually take photographs of things in their early childhood setting that actually captured or represented beauty for them. And it was really interesting to see the different parent perspectives on that. Some parents captured um, some documentation of children's work on the wall and for them that was beautiful. Some parents captured uh, photographs of the way an educator had set up maybe some glass bottles with some coloured liquid that were making beautiful light and reflections uh, in the classroom window as something representing beauty. Another parent uh, took a photo out in the garden because they said well we can't talk about beauty without talking about beauty in nature. So there are so many different levels and aspects to beauty and what was really interesting in these interviews was finding out that a lot of parents hadn't considered these things um, but realised that if it was missing it would be really noticeable. David, in your article, Parent Perspectives on Beauty, reflecting on research, you said there is a strong belief that exposure to and experiences with beauty are both a fundamental need and a child's right, and that there are many associated benefits. What are these benefits? Well, they're certainly not limited to these things, but some of the benefits include um, improvement in physical and emotional health, building connections in learning and understanding and relationships, um, a greater awareness of our, our place in nature and also sustainability and care for the planet. Um, there is Richard Louvre who talks about children suffering from nature deficit disorder actually says that unless we actually connect with our planet and have that time with it, then we're not going to be necessarily inclined to save it. And so one of the things that I think is really important, we, we obviously connect to things that are beautiful and so a greater awareness of our place in nature means that we're more likely to care for it. I think that experiences with beauty give us the benefit of nurturing wonder, discovery, creative expression, and I just think there's this, this uh, greater appreciation of, of beautiful things, whether that's art, whether that's nature, whether that's relationships. How do you set up your classroom to reflect your view? And beliefs? Well look I spend a lot of time th uh, thinking about um, the environment because if, if I think about the ideas of Reggio as the environment being a third teacher, as the environment speaking to children and families of what it is that I value, what it is that I feel is important in um, children's learning, then I really think I need to spend that time setting up the uh, environment to reflect my values, to reflect my purposes, to reflect what, what sort of messages I want to give. So for example, uh, one of the things that uh, happens in our classroom space is that we have very muted neutral neutral natural colors within the environment so our uh, environments are not loud they're not brightly colored what is actually standing out is the children's work the documentation of the children's learning that is actually what makes our space uh, a beautiful and engaging and meaningful space it's not the vibrant uh, alphabet colored charts on the wall it's not the you know the purple tables with the yellow chairs they're not the things that are beautiful it's, it's it's the, it's the things that are, that are put in there with thought and consideration and it's also very much the relationships, the beauty in the relationships. I spend a lot of time making sure that the relationships I have with the children and the families reflects this idea of beauty. How do you do that? Well, 
I think that takes time. As an educator, you, you have to really invest in this. It's it's something that's got to come from a, from a, a place that's, I guess, within you, a place of, of heart. I don't think you can be an early childhood teacher without having coming from a place of, of heart and building those relationships with people. And so I spend a lot of time nurturing those relationships with, with my children and with my families, whether that's through humour, whether that's through listening, whether that's through um, really making sure that children's ideas are valued and respected, whether it's making that extra bit of time at the beginning or the end of the day to um, talk to parents, whether that's making parents feel that they are welcome to come in anytime and be part of the learning programs. Um, I think all of these things help to um, nurture those relationships. In terms of relationships, David, all parents want to develop a positive relationship with their children. Through your research, what are some of the key points parents should be aware of as they raise children in today's world? I think coming back to what I was talking about earlier, it's, it's very much about having this idea in your head that your child is a competent and capable human being and a citizen now and really believing that. I think one of the things that uh, I really try to, to live in my work with children uh, in the classroom is really having this openness to um, what children can bring each day to their learning to their own learning to the group's learning and to my learning and to the learning of our community and I think if you come into uh, uh, your relationship with a child with an attitude that they are competent that they are creative that they are really deep thinkers then um, the sky's the limit with possibilities for them I think if we have this narrow focus of children being just something that we need to prepare for adulthood and prepare to to be uh, citizens in the community, then I think we're really missing out on this wonderful opportunity to nurture children for who they are and to really respect their voice, their identity and their ability to, um, to make a difference. You talked about settings and environments and connections with nature. Why is this important for children, the connection with nature? And how can parents enhance that connection at home? Look, I think one of the things that we are all guilty of is being very time poor. And one of the things that I would really encourage um, families to do is to actually spend that time doing the things that we have really fond memories of uh, ourselves as children. Playing down at the creek, climbing a tree, drawing in the mud, finding tadpoles, all of those sort of things that we have as really fond memories of, of our own childhood. If, if we are really concentrating on, let's see how many after-school activities we can do, let's see if I can keep my child as safe as possible by wrapping them up in cotton wool, then we're really depriving them of that opportunity to have a childhood. And a childhood is where we start really making sense of the world, where we really start making connections. So I would just encourage families to get out there, get out into the dirt, get out into the, the rain. I love in Denmark that they say there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. Just get out there and enjoy it because there are so many opportunities from being connected with nature that um, we miss out on if, we, um, if we're stuck in a world of um, being wrapped up in cotton wool, sitting in front of a computer, taking off to all these after school care activities that don't involve connections with nature. I think there's a real danger in, in really going towards what 
Richard Louv describes as nature deficit disorder. I think it's a real um, danger. We've got to stay connected. Do you think parents should supervise this nature play? I mean, there is always that fear there of something happening to to your children if you're not oh, watching look, them. We live in Australia. We live in, we live in a land of uh, snakes and spiders and all sorts of threats. But the reality is we still need to have that element of trust. We still need to, uh, you know, manage risk. Sure, you know, if, if you want your kids, for example, in our playground um, space at the school I currently work at, we allow our children to climb trees, but we have certain trees that the children know are better for climbing than others because they will be safer trees for climbing. So it's about establishing those, um, I guess, boundaries and routines and, and, and uh, uh, ideas around that tree to make it a safe place. So. It's not about saying um, uh, climb all trees. You still have to have some things in, in place to make sure you're managing risk, but it's certainly not the opposite extreme. Don't climb that tree, that tree is unsafe. So it's all about balance, I think. I think a lot of the concern too is, uh, you know, if you let your children walk up the street on their own or go down to the creek on their own, I mean, you see the terrible reports on the news of children being taken, etc. I really think this feeds into a lot of this fear. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Once again, and it's I, probably justified in many in, respects. In some well. ways, in some ways, it is. But I think also there are ways of managing that. There are ways of putting in a boundaries and safe practices. You know, there are certainly things that we can do to help keep our children safe. Them knowing their phone number, all of these sort of things. There are all these little things that you can do to ensure that you're managing risk in a way that is still giving them that exposure to it, but is still keeping them um, um, safe as well. Because essentially what you're saying is, if we don't allow this, the neg there are negative impacts on our children's development. Absolutely, absolutely. There is certainly a lot of research to show that this is the case. That if we're not giving children exposure um, to nature, if we're not giving children exposure um, to taking risk, then we're really having detrimental effects on their overall health, physical and mental. One of the things that was really interesting about going to Denmark was that uh, going down one of the streets uh, and we were outside a cafeteria and outside the cafeteria were all the prams lined up with all of the babies. The babies were all outside because there is this belief in Denmark that you need to be out in the fresh air, in the weather, um, because it's good for your, your child's health. And inside the restaurant, there were the dogs. The owner's dogs were actually inside the restaurant having the meal with the owner and the babies were outside. Now in Australia, we've got a completely different uh, perspective on that. The dogs are outside and the babies are inside because we want to keep them safe. But that comes from the, the society really, really valuing this and also really valuing that sense of trust. We, we're certainly not at that stage, but it's certainly something that we need to think about in how can we start making little inroads to make sure our children are getting these benefits from connecting with nature. If we finish today, David, on looking towards the future, where is your research taking you? Where do you plan to go? And what are your hopes for the future, if you like? Look, for me, I really feel like one of the things that the research highlighted was the fact that um, we need to be really, really conscious of our, our image of children and what we believe children to be. Um, I think we're well and truly past this idea 
of children being needy. We're really past this idea of preparing children to become something. That, that education is about preparing for the workforce. Um, we're past this idea. These are all ideas that came about in the industrialization period when the whole idea of education was to produce people for the workforce. That's not what education is about. Education is about building uh, really beautiful people here and now, citizens that can contribute to the present and to the future. And the way of doing that is by having these wonderful relationships, by having a really strong image of child, by making sure that we're really, really focusing on this idea that they are competent, capable, creative. They're children with rights. They're children that have the potential to um, make a difference here and now. And then I think the sky's the limit. Well, David, any child that goes through your classroom is a very lucky child. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks very much. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with David Jilks from Illawarra Primary School in Hobart. If you're interested in learning more about David's work, visit his website, djilkseducationconsultant.com.au. And if you're interested in the Reggio Amelia Educational Project, go to regioaustralia.org.au. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>